I invite you to the 23rd Psalm again today. Psalm 23. Let's read this psalm together as we did last Lord's Day. Psalm 23. Reading together in unison this psalm of David. Reading together Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we nourished our souls on this timeless psalm, and we sought to shake off the stupor of familiarity, to revel in God as shepherd, verses 1-4, through four, and in God as host, verses 5-6. through six. On Wednesday night, before the adults scattered for prayer in small groups, we reviewed uh, Psalm 23, and then we gathered in our groups uh, to discuss this question before we went to prayer. How does the New Testament relate the themes of God as shepherd and God as host to the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus identified Himself with the Hebrew name Yahweh, translated here Lord, in our English versions of Psalm 23. In John 8, Jesus declared to His detractors, before Abraham was, I am. I am connects to that name Yahweh, translated Lord here. Speaking of Himself as I am, Jesus identified Himself as Yahweh of the Hebrew Scriptures. Not the only place that that takes place, but it does so certainly in John 8. Are we sure about that? Is Jesus truly identifying Himself with God? Is He really saying that I am the great I Am? Well, His enemies certainly caught that idea, didn't they, in John 8? They picked up stones to execute Him when He said that. There's so many people today that say, well, when Jesus said, I am, or He identified with the Lord, He's not really saying that He's God. Well, His enemies didn't think that was what He was saying. They knew that was what He was saying. They knew that He was claiming to be God. That's why they saw it as blasphemous. And when you think that someone has made a blasphemous statement in that setting, you pick up stones to kill them. What do you do if you believe His claim to be true? You worship Him. You worship Him. And one of the evidences that Jesus is God, that He identifies with the Lord of the Hebrew Scriptures, is the linkage that we find in these themes from Psalm 23 in the life of Jesus. Yahweh as shepherd and Yahweh as host. 
Lord willing, I'd like us to consider next Lord's Day, as God gives us opportunity, Jesus as host, as we gather together around the Lord's table. But today, I'd like to turn our attention to Jesus as the all-sufficient, all-satisfying shepherd of our souls. We looked at that theme last week as we considered Psalm 23. We look at it now this week in the face of Jesus Christ, who is God and our shepherd. Nowhere is this vital theme sounded in the New Testament any more pointedly than in John chapter 10. I invite you to turn there. John chapter 10, much like Psalm 23, John 10 is so familiar to us. We battle to grasp its significance anew and to refresh our souls at these waters because we're quite familiar with Jesus' teaching here, those who, are, who know the Bible at all. But much like Psalm 23, John 10 speaks of God as the great shepherd. To do this, to consider this truth, I think it's wise to step into this text recognizing Jesus' heart toward people as sheep. Matthew 9, verse 36 says, But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. In John 9, Jesus finds one of these orphan souls, one of these shepherdless sheep. He's a man blind from birth who is equally blind spiritually. Jesus heals the man's blind eyes and He declares Himself to be the Savior. John 9.38 reports that the man eventually responded, Lord, I believe. And the text says, and He worshipped Him. That's what you do when you know Him to be the Lord. So we have some people, as we come to this place in John, picking up stones to stone Jesus, John 8, because He says, I am the Lord. We have another man here, a shepherdless soul, a blinded man, now given light physically, and also sight spiritually, saying, I believe, and He worships. Now the enemies of Christ if I can put it in quotations, shepherd this man, this blind man. They shepherd him now that he's gained his sight by banning him from worship in the synagogue. That's how they deal with him. You've been healed by Jesus, you're no good. Get out of here. He was no good before. Now he's really no good. This is how they care for the man. Thinking that in context, Jesus now ministers to him. He shepherds him by declaring that he is the good shepherd, inviting the man to come to him. As this man is finding out then, and as all of us need to recognize, there are many false shepherds in this world. There are spiritual thieves and robbers who only harm souls. Their interest in you is to get something from you. Their interest in you is to bring harm so that they get their way. We find the warning about such people in this text in Jesus' teaching. By contrast to these imposters, we learn here in this passage there is only one true shepherd of our souls. Verse 1, Jesus teaches this as He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door climbs in by another way. That man is a thief 
and a robber. It's fairly obvious, but you see a man entering a house through a basement window under the cover of night and you don't assume the best. You figure there's something wrong there. If you see a young man in a hooded sweatshirt picking the lock of a car door on a city street and then he starts to hotwire the car, you don't figure he's lost his keys. He's never had them. He's up to no good. And in ancient Israel, if you saw a man climb over the wall of a sheep pen, you assume he is a thief and a robber. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus apparently envisions here a community sheep pen, which were common in that day. They would secure the flocks of a number of shepherds overnight. So the watchman stands guard at the gate, the door of the pen, all night. When the shepherds come back in the morning, coming individually, a shepherd would stand at the gate, be given access by the gatekeeper, and then make this distinct guttural call, and the sheep would hear his voice, they'd recognize it, and they'd assemble at the gate. The other sheep who were not of the flock would not come. Indistinct voice, something they don't recognize. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, then, that is after he's called them, they assembled at the gate, they leave through the gate, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. We know this about sheep, indeed, they recognize a voice if it is consistent and they recognize the voice of their shepherd they do not recognize the voice of one who's not their shepherd and it sends fear into them when they hear such a call so in response to the shepherd's call his sheep come to the gate from among the other flocks sorting themselves out They come to Christ and they willingly then follow Him as He leads them to pasture. The response to this, we see just a note here, verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what He was saying to them. It's a word of invitation. Come to Me, I'm the shepherd. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They, they, I mean, they understand very much what he's saying, but they don't understand that he's pointing to himself. It's, they don't understand it's an invitation. They miss the point. There is, as he has made clear, only one true shepherd of our souls. There's false shepherds, plural. There's one shepherd. Now Jesus goes in his discussion here to make it clear that Jesus is that one true shepherd. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door of the sheep. Verses 1 and 2, we have this night scene. The sheep are left in charge of the gatekeeper while the shepherd sleeps elsewhere. Verses 3 through 5, the shepherd is pasturing the flock out in the fields. And now we have something of a different scene, and this is where the shepherd himself puts them in a, in a, a, a rugged pen out in the field, lays down at the door, and becomes the door to the gate pen. He's now the only watchman out here in the field, and he is, in a sense, the door to the sheep pen. Verse 8, all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Thieves and robbers, false teachers, false messiahs, anyone posing as a soul shepherd without God's approval. Jesus' sheep do not listen to these false shepherds who only kill and destroy. Jesus' sheep hear His voice. He saves them. And He nurtures their spiritual life. As they come to Jesus, their shepherd, as they hear His voice, they can now go in and out and find pasture. There is the picture of a sheep entering and leaving the security of the pen and finding satisfaction in the food that is provided out in the field. It's a picture of security, a picture of abundance. In fact, Jesus refers to it as abundant life. So as we consider His teaching, we need to grasp this, that Jesus is the source of my salvation. He is the satisfaction of every right longing and need of my soul. Now that's simple Christianity, but it's profound, and we must grasp it, and the quality of our lives hinges on reception of this truth. Jesus Christ is the source of my satisfaction and the salvation of every right longing and need of my soul. Jesus is. Secondly, Jesus is the passageway to the abundant life that we may have as a member of God's flock. He is that door. He is that entry point. And only Jesus is that entry point. As He says later in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Now there's an an inclusive Jesus out there that many religious teachers like to peddle. But it's not the Jesus of Scripture. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. And I then, as those come to me, give them abundant life. That is my mission. Our world is filled with philosophies. It is filled with gurus, with lifestyles and pastimes that leave people wounded, harassed, and ultimately empty. I've come, says Jesus, to give them abundant life. That's why He's come. That's who He is. The false shepherds that prey on souls do not know what the human soul is. They do not know what is wrong with that soul, and they don't know how to fix it. All they can do is keep us busy for a time. To glut base desires for a season. And so their assertions, because of their ignorance and their agendas, proved destructive to the souls who had never put our heart in the hand of a novice with open heart surgery. We would never even consider doing that. Somebody said, well, I've, I've looked at a lot of books, and I think I could really pull it off if I had to. Well, let's give it a try. Not on your life would you do that. How amazing it is how people will so quickly hand their soul 
to a novice surgeon that has no clue what the soul is, what's wrong with it, or how to fix it. Because it turns them on at the moment. It's interesting. How foolish that is. We get to that point today. Would you have to say, is your soul dry? Is it empty? Is there an aching sense of sorrow and discontent that echoes around in your being? Put that emptiness, that sorrow, that lack of satisfaction together with this truth. Jesus saying, I did not come to maim you, to hurt you, to traumatize you. I came to save you. I came to feed your soul, to nourish and strengthen it so that it overflows with joy and satisfaction. I have come on a mission from God to give you abundant life. It's not a feel-good message of wishful thinking. It's a wake-up call. If we haven't entered that abundant life and we don't know Jesus as the source of that abundant life, there's something wrong, not with Him, but with us. There's something wrong with the shepherds we're hearing. The path that we're walking if you're not experiencing abundant life in relationship to Jesus Christ, listen to His testimony. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. You need to come to terms with Jesus Christ in your relationship with Him as I do. Well, who is he? Who is he? Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. That's who I am. This is a bold, exclusive claim. The Greek would read, I, I am the shepherd, the good one. The beautiful, exquisite, excellent one. It certainly means he's good in a moral sense, but it means much more than that. It means that he is the exquisite shepherd. The beautiful shepherd. I am not one shepherd among many, I am not a shepherd of souls. I am the only shepherd, the excellent, the incomparable shepherd of souls. And here's the demonstration of that bold claim. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As good shepherds put their life on the line to protect the sheep, so Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. This is the reality that he's pointing to. Jesus died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of their sin. We're not talking about a wolf. We're talking about death itself. Jesus laid down his life to save his people. False shepherds don't do that. False shepherds take people to death with them. False shepherds get people to die, but they don't die for them. False shepherds come only to steal. They only come to suck your soul dry. And if they die, they want you to die with them. Jesus is the exact opposite. I lay down my life so you can live. He died for us the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. 
By contrast, again, verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. For the hireling, the hired hand, the shepherd who doesn't own the sheep, the shepherd who doesn't have a real intimate relationship with them, all is well as long as all is well. But when trouble strikes, now we have trouble. The sun dips behind a hill. Dusk settles over the remote field where the hired hand watches the grazing flock. He begins to lead the flock back to the pen for the night, but struggles to gather them in. He's not as skillful as the true shepherd, and he struggles in his task. Daylight fades faster than he had anticipated. He's tired. He's irritable. He's gruff with the sheep, and the sheep begin to grow increasingly uneasy and uncooperative. And suddenly, out of the corner of his eye, he detects a motion, a movement, He spins to face his worst nightmare. He sees the gleam in the eyes of a wolf in the darkness coming down upon the flock. And frozen with fear, driven by a sense of self-preservation, that hired hand makes a split-second decision and decides to run for cover. And it's easy pickings for the wolf this night. The sheep scatter. Bedlam prevails. Sheep die as the hired hand cowers behind a rock. Jesus is saying to us in this teaching, in a very memorable way, I will never do that. I will never turn and run. I will never forsake you. That's exactly what I'm not. Rather than cave into fear, rather than give way to self-preservation, I lay down my life for the flock. In contrast to all others, Jesus is the good shepherd. Put your confidence and your trust in friends, in family, in money, in philosophy, in ritualistic religion, in entertainment, and when the trouble comes, you'll be left to yourself all alone. Run out of money and the psychologist will suddenly run out of time and answers. Get snared in suffering and false teachers, false philosophies and false friends will abandon you very quickly. But the truth is, Jesus will never treat you like that. Not if you are his sheep. Never. I am the good shepherd, he says in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. Think of this. He knows his sheep with the same intimate and complete knowledge with which the Father and Son know one another. And fully knowing us, He lays His life down for us. That's an amazing thought. He knows me. And yet He lays His life down for me. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
He will be there. You go through deep, troubled waters, He will be there. You fall under attack from a spiritual wolf that is stronger than you, Jesus will be there. Abandoned by others, betrayed, forsaken, forgotten, He will be there. Moral temptation, disease, financial trial, marital breakdown, confusion, failure, yes, He will be there. I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. He's a shepherd of tenacious loyalty to His sheep. A loving shepherd that continues to work to gather His sheep. There's a relationship here that goes beyond those that are actually in His flock. Verse 16, as we considered several weeks ago, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them also, and they will listen to My voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There are sheep, notice, who belong to Christ but are not yet in the fold. With a tone of urgency, Jesus says, I must bring them also. I must get them into My flock. He labors to that end. How do they enter the fold? Now hear this. And think carefully. How do they get into the fold? They're not in there yet. They are His sheep. They don't know it. They're going to be brought into His fold. How do they gain access? Verse 9 If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Verse 14, my own sheep know me. They know me. Now hear that. My sheep know me. Verse 16, they will listen to my voice. It's difficult to really understand But we're seeing in our day, even those who would call themselves evangelicals, those who believe in salvation by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, who are saying the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. My sheep know my voice. They know me. They come through the door. I am that door. They listen to my voice. Yet a leading evangelical has said this, and I quote, I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, they are members of the body of Christ. God is calling people out of the world for His name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think they are saved. By the way, that's Murray quoting, not Murray writing. Hear again the words of Jesus. Yes, he's right. There are people who know that there's emptiness in their hearts. But this speaker says they may not know the name of Jesus, but yet they're saved. What does Jesus say? If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. My own know me. They listen to my voice. Yes, he must call them into his flock. But when he does, they hear Jesus. Romans 3 and verse 11 
causes great consternation, I think, to this statement that we have on the screen before us. It says, there is no one who seeks God. Romans 10 and verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. The result then is that there is one flock with one shepherd, not numerous flocks responding to numerous shepherds. So the point I think here in context is that Jews and Gentiles will be reconciled to one another as the church because they have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ, through His death and His resurrection. So there is only one true shepherd. Jesus Christ is that shepherd. His sheep hear His voice. And thus we say, verse 17 and following, there must be a response to this one true shepherd. We've got to come to terms with what Jesus is saying about who He is and how He relates to His flock. There must be a response. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life, that I may take it up again. I lay My life down, I die, that I might rise from the dead. Verse 18, No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of My own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We're working our way toward the response, but just hold on. Let's just think quickly about these two verses. The Father looks at the self-sacrificing work of the Good Shepherd for the sheep, and the Father approves. The Father loves the Son because the Son lays down His life for the sheep. Further, the Son dies in order that He may defeat death according to the Father's sovereign plan. Jesus dies to fulfill His Father's desire to save lost souls by paying the penalty of their sin for them. Notice the response, a divided response. Verse 19 There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Who's the blind? Going back to chapter 9, and this man whose eyes have been made to see. We see in verses 17 and 18 then God's, the Father's, unequivocal approval God the Father looks at what the Son has done to die and rise from the dead and He approves. He's filled with thanksgiving. But we find man's divided assessment. There are some who reject Him. If you don't believe Jesus is who He says He is, the only possible answer is that He's stark raving mad. And that's what they say of Him. He has a demon and is insane. But if you come to realize that what Jesus says about Himself is true, in this case, supported by the healing of the blind man, then you do what the blind man did. What did He do? He worshipped Him. So as we consider this teaching of Jesus, there is only one true spiritual shepherd of your soul. Jesus is that shepherd. You must respond to who Jesus is and to what He has done to save and nourish and sustain sinners jesus is the great wedge of humanity there are those 
dividing off to one side who reject Him and those dividing off to the other who are saved by Him and find in Him abundant life. Where are you? What is your response? Is Jesus genuinely, honestly, as you consider your own heart, is Jesus your soul shepherd, and do you rejoice in that reality? Have you come here today to gather with His people and you say, yes, there is indeed with all of my sin and weakness joy in my soul that Christ is my shepherd? I can testify to that. If that's not the case, if you don't find that joy in Him, you're not seeing that He is the source of abundant life within your soul. I plead with you in Christ's name to realize that the philosophy of life that you embrace and the sources to which you run for comfort and happiness is sucking you dry. You keep renewing it. You keep seeking interest and satisfaction in these sources. But if Christ is not your soul's satisfaction You're in the hands of a robber and a thief, a soul thief. And I would plead with you in Christ's name to realize this and to be reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus as your Savior from sin and as your hope and life. If God has opened your eyes to this reality, if He has enabled you to know that Jesus laid down His life so that you can receive as a gift His abundant life, if He's spoken and you've heard His voice, I don't mean literally, but if He's spoken and you've heard that voice, rejoice. Think of it. Your soul has found its eternal rest, not in a philosophy, not in a religion, not in a creed, not in a religious experience of some sort, but in the Good Shepherd Himself. Rejoice. You can forever rest assured that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you, but will lead you safely home to the Father no matter the trials of this life. Rejoice. Your soul has found its eternal nourishment and its sustaining counsel in God's Word. God's living Word, Jesus Christ. Rejoice that by His Word and His Spirit, He guides us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. How rich we are in Christ. What abundant life there is in this. I've told this story, I think, three or four times in the years I've been here, but for those who haven't heard it, and maybe to refresh for a few, but it just stands out so pointedly in this context for me. I was working before I came here many years ago at the University of Minnesota and was handing out, was working with in a Bible um, group there and was handing out tracts of, uh, that I had written uh, to speak about the purpose of life and how we can find abundant life in Christ. And I handed one of these pieces of literature to a young man who was walking across a bridge there on campus and he looked at me with disgust And he took it, but he couldn't think of what to say. And it was a really stilted, weird exchange. And we just kind of kept moving on. Neither one of us could really figure out what to say. 
providentially, the very next week, I handed the very same literature to the very same young man. No idea. He was in a completely different place on this massive campus, and I didn't even recognize him. He said, you gave this to me last week. (laughs) I got chills. That You're kidding. And all these people, they didn't hand out all that many. But here's the same guy, the same thing, and this time he found his tongue. And he chided me for the audacity to presume to tell others where their soul's satisfaction was found. That I would walk around this place and tell people the answer to their emptiness. Well, we kind of went back and forth in a really fruitless exchange over a period of time. And I finally decided I'm just going to reverse course on this guy and say, okay, you tell me. What's the purpose of life? Why do you live What's the source of satisfaction? And he got very, very quiet. He hung his head for the longest time. I wondered if he was ever going to speak. And he finally looked up at me and said, I have no idea. An orphan soul. A rudderless, hopeless soul who was honest enough to say, in all of the things I'm chasing, there's no joy. There's no satisfaction. There's no purpose or answer. We gather this day as a church of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ What a joy it should be to our soul to say, I'll never have to say that. I will never have to say, I don't know. I can say, not because of any goodness in me, but I can say because Jesus has called me into His flock. He has laid His life down for me. I've heard His voice. I see Him as the source of abundant life. I can always say, Jesus is my life. He is the source of forgiveness. He is the source of reconciliation with God in all of my weakness, in all of my sin, in all of my failure. I rest at ease in His work. I know why I live. And it is to find joy in Christ now and for all eternity. How we should sing as God's church, as Christ's church, when we consider that He is the Good Shepherd who has come to give abundant life forever. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be and have the privilege to be saved. Let's bow for prayer.